the chefs. We the chefs are working together to create a better food future. I am George. Andy. Tom from Nigeria. Switzerland. Los Angeles. London. India. New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is, is life. life. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt. Each week, we chat to different chefs and experts from around the world about the environmental, sociological and economical impacts of our food. Check us out online and subscribe to find our other podcasts. We're living through unprecedented times that have rocked the world as we know it, causing great challenges to all aspects of our lives. In this episode, we discuss how our food has been affected, its strengths and weaknesses, while shedding some light on how we can support our food system through these difficult times. To discuss these issues, we've invited a friend of mine to talk with us, who was influential in the writing and research of my cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. Professor Tim Lang is the UK's leading expert in food policy has been a consultant to the World Health Organization, special advisor to four House of Commons select committee inquiries, and a food policy advisor to the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. For the last 25 years, he has researched, written and lectured on the role of policy in shaping and responding to the food system. And he previously spent seven years as a hill farmer, an experience which has shaped his work ever since. Tim is the author of many books, including his timely new book, Feeding Britain, Our Food Problems and How to Fix Them. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This is a great pleasure. It's, it's a real privilege to have you on, especially in such troubling times and when I imagine you're incredibly busy. Um, it would be great to start by talking a little bit about your new book, and I'd love to know why you felt you had to write it. Um, uh, I hope talking about a book doesn't turn people off, but the, the book was motivated and I'm looking at part of the motivation on my desk because I'm talking from my home in southwest London. Um, when I was very young, 22, I read a book that I bought in a junk shop, which was written in 1939, which essentially looked at British food security. And uh, I read it and I was getting interested in food and farming. And indeed, I went farming and then went back to academia and have done all the things I've done ever since. And my that book sparked an interest that I've had for 45, nearly 50 years, actually 50 years now, um, which was in food security. Now, it means the term food security is used very loosely. It means all things to all people. And I've written boring academic articles saying, you know, maybe it's lost all value. But the fact is people use it. So why I set out to write the book, to answer your question, Tom, was because here am I, I've worked for many years on world food, on rich world food, on transitions in food, diet, impact on health, environment. And I've done quite a lot on Britain, but why didn't I look at Britain? And to cut a long story short, as happens, a publisher asked me to do it uh, seven years ago, eight years ago, 
Um, and I was going to do it and thinking about it when suddenly a colleague had a terrible health crisis and I had to step in and do his job for the next five years. So my feet barely touched the ground. Three years ago, uh, in the middle of thinking about Brexit, all of these issues emerged. Well, what if things went really badly wrong? What if Britain suddenly put barriers up to the rest of Europe or Europe to us or whatever? And where was the food system going? So I sat down and wrote the book. And the first part of it is a very sober, low-key account of British food security, whether you mean, whether you mean self-sufficiency, food in the nation, food supply, um, uh, self-sufficiency, food defense, food controls, food resilience, food risks. I run through a whole range of different interpretations of what one means by food security. And I say, holy Moses, dear Great Britain, dear fellow Brits, because I'm British, um, it's not as good as we think. Just because we go in to a shop and it's full or there are lots of eating out places now, that doesn't mean to say it's secure, whatever one means by that. And then the second great chunk of the book says, well, OK, if we had to address this, if we really did want to take these multiple meanings of food security, risks, risks resilience, defence, supply, what would we have to do? And I then outline 12 structural food problems that I think we've got to address. And they range from things that people know about, inequalities, health, etc., to things they don't talk about or know about, civil contingencies, wartime planning, defence stuff. And I then say, OK, well, this is a very complicated situation here, but that's what it is, and that's what the academic and scientific literature tells us. Um, we're in an era of climate change, but it's also water threat. It's also rabid and uh, impacts on, on work. Uh, what are we going to do about it in the fifth richest economy on the planet? And the book ends by a very long run through what I, if I was an advisor to government or to the British people, this is where I would start. And it's about putting together what rather pompously in academia we call a multi-criteria approach to food. Food, you're, you're chefs, you're into the pleasure and delivering it. Pleasure is really important and that cultural dimension is really important. But so's health, so's environment, so's the economy, so's social and cultural aspects uh, of food, uh, uh, and so's the environment, and so's governance, how we, how we do this. Uh, so the book ends by putting that together in, I hope, a structured but radical way. Uh, because let me just put it very starkly in two sentences. British food security is not nearly as good as you think it is, and you might hope it is. It's not, Armag it's not Armageddon, but it's not good. But there, we know enough to be able to do something about it, and we're pretty clear about what could be done about it. So let's get going, because we've got pointers already of why we must do this. We actually have a law in Britain of climate change. The Climate Change Act 2007 stipulates, and now to its credit, the current government has said it'll go along with that, to get the economy to zero carbon by 2050. Well, we've got to do that for food. Well, that is going to completely shake up food, let alone all the other things that have got to happen as well. So that, that's a five minute introduction to my book. Perfect. 
And I mean, these. It, this seems to be a narrative that is throughout the world. The food system seems broken globally. And I think that's. I think that's true. But believe it or not, there are some peculiarities of the rich. Remember, in Britain, in fact, one of the things I spell out, uh, I hope, accessibly, is that we have the biggest gap between the very rich and the very poor that we've ever had. Um, in Victorian times, where there were very big gaps, actually the rich died as well. Contagions took them. It was no, uh, uh, no real advantage. There was no escape. Uh, uh, now we've got 10, 12 year gaps in some parts of the country between the richest and the poorest within regions, within towns, eight, 10 year gaps. I mean, you would, it's staggering. And we put up with that as normal. And here we are talking, Tom, you and I, uh, and our listeners listening in a time of coronavirus, uh, which is also no respecter of wealth. And I hope this is actually, paradoxically, it may be a bit of a wake-up call to remind us of what really matters. And in rich countries like Britain, we've been living off the back of the earth. And in Britain, we have particular baggage, uh, which is that we had an empire. And in 1815 to 1846, for 31 years, a brutal, bruising battle went on inside British politics about how to feed ourselves, believe it or not. And it was all post the Napoleonic Wars, which had caused devastation. The Brits now just think, oh, we won, we beat Napoleon. Actually, Napoleon was incredibly popular in Britain, which is why he was not sent to prison in Britain, but sent off to Elba and then out into the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, and, and we, it, well, the battle that went on was between the old landed aristocracy and the new industrialists. And the new industrialists wanted food to come from anywhere and to be cheap. The aristocrats and landowners wanted food to be kept out unless it came from them. So they had taxes and the fight went on in Parliament and it ended up with the industrialists winning. And people even then in the 1940s said, this may be a Pyrrhic victory. It, we, we may now get cheaper food, but they'll just lower our wages. And that was true because food was a big element of people's wages. It still is actually today, 170, 80 years later. But the point of my story, my going backwards, is the default policy thinking in Whitehall is still let others feed us. When Britain has this very benign climate. Now, Tom, you know, I used to farm on the Pennines uh, with colleagues. You can't grow mangoes on the Pennines. More's the pity. And you probably never will. And if there, you can, it'll be a disastrous climate will have eradicated lots of people. But we have lots of good land. And in my book, I show we have six million hectares of land in Britain not being used to grow food direct for humans. We have only 165,000 hectares down to horticulture, and too much of that is in at-risk lands below sea level. 
I was born in Lincoln, on the top of the hill in Lincoln. You look down across Lincolnshire and it's fens. The Romans started draining it because they knew that if you go down and there used to be 15 feet, 18 feet deep soil, it's now been so worn down, there's not as much. We've got to be planning to have horticulture further up because we're expecting the sea levels of the world to rise in the time of your daughter, Tom. Uh, hopefully she will live till she's 80 uh, or, or plus. We're going to need to move horticulture up three meters. Well, that's going to need to start now. We've got to skill people now. That's very British. It's not just everyone's problem, but you're right. The general need to take food more seriously and to rethink food, those aren't just British problems. I've spent great slabs of my life. I spent the last three or four years on the Eat Lancet report, um, which basically was a huge modelling exercise that concluded, yes, we can feed the world healthily, but it's going to need a very different diet, much less animal-based diet, much more plant-based diet. And that means land use changes. But for Britain... That's dealing, it means dealing not just with um, uh, those messages, but it means dealing with unpicking the history of our reflex, which is, oh, we can get food from anywhere and we don't need farmers. I mean, even from inside this government in the crisis, you've had people being leaked from inside number 10 who said we don't need farmers. I put in my book. Ten years ago, people in the cabinet office were saying we don't need farmers. This is stupid of all stupidities you go to italy or france you go across the channel and you don't get people inside government saying that so yeah. britain has some particular problems that we've got to sort out so tim you've you've described very clearly the inequalities um within our society but paradoxically i'm sure you'd agree that food is actually far too cheap and we're seeing massive destruction across the planet through its um, external costs. So considering that, how do you kind of, what are the solutions? How do you think we can start to feed everyone um, and give everyone access to food, at least in the UK to start with? In the, in the, second, in the second part of my book, um, where I look at these 12 food problems that I grouped together under 12 to try and make it easier. Well, I actually wanted it to be about six or seven, but it just it couldn't fit. The first, Tom, is the point that you've just raised. The money flows send the wrong signals, I called it. Um, when you look at the British food supply chain, we spend, British consumers spend about £225.7 billion in 2019 on food, about that. That's a lot of money. That's a quarter of a trillion pounds. Of that, if you measure it in what's called gross value added, who's making the money out of it? Who's adding value across that chain from fishing and farming and horticulture through to um, the end? Farming gets about 7%. The growers get 7%. It's tiny. Actually, when you said food's too cheap, food has actually got more expensive in in real terms over the last uh, 70 years since the end of the Second World War. Um, but in relative terms, it's gone down. Um, what, let me say that in a different way. Um, uh, in 1950, I was born in 1948. I'm 72. In 1948, uh, um, food 
took about 35% of households expenditure on average. The rich much less, the poor much more. Today it's 9%, but if you include eating out, 12%. So in other words, it's gone down uh, you know, dramatically. It's gone down to a third or a quarter of what it was 70 years ago. But actually in real terms, it's gone up because the chains have got longer and more and more new people have come into the chain. Uh, let me just give an example. Um, uh, this, uh, delivery services have emerged in 12 years. They now take as much money as farming does. Delivery services take 10 billion pounds. So deliverers, just eats and people, these didn't exist. Okay. Now, okay, you could say this is modernity, but the point I raise in my chapter, now, dear Britain, your question is right, Tom, it's not food is too cheap, but where do you want the money to go? And I say, uh, I think actually primary producers need more of it. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that probably means shorter chains. So yes. for you in the catering world, I don't want you to get all your produce to be jetting in from expensive high carbon airplanes or trucking thousands of kilometers. If you could get pretty much the same sort of food or a, a better diversity from five miles down the road. I, I'm increasing as I've got older, I've become more interested in what in my world we call a bio-regional approach. That doesn't mean to say you only eat from within 100 miles. There used to be a, a chef's campaign in Vancouver called the 100 mile diet. Um, I understood it. It was responding to something that I actually I started, the food miles concept. Uh, I don't think necessarily Ultra local is the answer to everything because if you're growing it under plastic and you're using nuclear power stations to heat the to run the lights that you're um, uh, artificially raising a, a plant under, and actually if you do that, they usually taste pretty horrible. You people know that only too well. But we have to think of some way of defining what do we mean by a sustainable diet, and part of that I think is seasonality. All of you chefs know that. With uh, such poverty in the UK, people can't afford to buy vegetables from supermarkets, let alone direct from farmers in farmers markets where they do tend to be slightly more expensive. All people can afford to buy often is a one pound pizza or, you know, these kind of hyper processed products that are available at incredibly cheap prices. So, I guess the, when it comes to this is I'm asking you because this is a, often a conundrum I come up against and want to try and solve in order to kind of help through my own recipe writing and education to give more people access to good fresh food and vegetables. I think that's absolutely right. I, I'm not disagreeing with you, Tom, at all. And, and forgive me for putting it in sort of the grand sweep that I was. But, no. uh, you know, Part of what I've done, that's why one writes a book, as you know, is to share your thinking. Um, don't get me wrong. I want that debate that you're asking about, about how much do we spend to be. It's a central part of the debate. That's why I said it, it's food problem number one. Where where are the money flows going and the prices send the wrong signals? And, you know, I'm part of that generation of academics that uses what my friend Carlos Montero in in Brazil called ultra processed foods. Britain has the most ultra processed food diet in Europe. 
51% of our diet is ultra processed. Um, we've got to lower that. I think it should be a target to lower that. And that is not being against processing. Cooking is processing. It, the, the issue is what sort of diet, what nutritional shape is it, and how much? So I could, what's wrong with a frozen pizza if it's feeding you in midwinter when you can't get access to tomatoes? I'm not sure I'm against it. The point is, what's the quality of it and how much fat is in it and um, where is the money flow going? Um, so you're right, the money is critical and the cost and the critical issue. That For me, the number one issue actually is... Um, uh, within all of this is making sure that Britain produces more fruit and vegetables. We should be growing more and they should be plentiful. And I don't see any reason why horticulture in Britain couldn't double, treble, quadruple. Uh, but that needs us thinking through land ownership and land use. Yes. And at the moment, we've not done that. And one of the things I recommend in my book in, in the 15,000 words at the end is I call for a new generation of of regional food planning that I, I don't think London can sort this out. Whitehall can sort it out. It's, there are things you can do at a national level, but there are things that got to be done at a more local level. I th I, in, in the late 19th century, when Britain's farming had collapsed and people began to think, well, what are we going to do about this? What if? And then it took World War One to do that, actually. They started creating colleges of agriculture. They started co creating regional agriculture societies. They, uh, I think it needs to be more than that. We've got to, I think we need new urban rural colleges of what I call colleges of agri-food, which link you know, the city with the with the countryside in, in a city like London or Birmingham or Manchester or Glasgow, big cities. That's quite hard to do, but we've got to do it. But in small towns and smaller cities, Bath, why not? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Bristol, why Bristol is showing how we can do it. I think in Britain, the sustainable food cities movement is just brilliant at beginning to pioneer that. But it's not got any leverage. It's not got any legal basis. One of the things I call for in my book is a new Food Resilience and Sustainability Act. The new government that we've got at the moment taking us out of Europe has got rid of the common agricultural policy and, and food standards and things like that are all up in the air. It's got an agriculture bill going through Parliament at the moment. I'm sure you know, Tom. It barely mentions food. The point of agriculture, according to this, is environmental land management services. Well, I've spent 40 years of my life. I was an organic farmer. I'm in favour of food and agriculture being for ecosystems, but not if it's ignoring food. <laughs> Which is, as you were saying, all about the attitude that someone else will feed us. But what I, I mean, it's the 31st of March and the, everything's changing by the day. I, I feel like it would make sense for us to talk a little bit about what's happening now, especially seeing as your book is so hugely relevant. Um, and so supermarkets have been struggling to keep up with demand. Shelves are empty. Um, veg boxes are becoming oversubscribed. People are buying seeds and replanting gardens. Why is this happening? Why are we starting to see these food shortages? Uh, the supply chain, one of the things I explain in my book is 
what I think people are beginning in a little way to become more aware of. Um, it, it's these three magic words, just in time. And this is a model that was developed by Toyota, the car company, for and, and that rocketed Toyota into its super number number two position in the in the car market from being much lower down. Uh, they said, let's get rid of storage. We don't need storage. We only need these uh, wheels when we need to put the wheels on the car. We don't need the dashboard until we need to put it into the car. So they developed a system of micromanagement called just in time. In other words, the bit arrives to be assembled just in time. Well, Tesco borrowed that. And that's why Tesco rocketed in my lifetime from being a two bit, quite a big store um, into number one and indeed number three in the world. Um, uh, because it applied this and just leapt through. And now they all try and do it. And the entire British food system is a just-in-time food system. Now, when there was a, a lorry strike in 1999, I talked with ministers at the time, uh, they knew that um, the food system was within three to five days uh, of, of closure. It could be held up by a thousand lorry drivers just blockading the motorways. Uh, awareness was put in. Civil Contingencies Act 2004 was put in supposedly to monitor how bad things could happen. Uh, and indeed, one of the angry bits in my book says uh, we should be preparing for things like this. And here we are now, Tom, after my book went off to the publishers and finally actually went just in, in January. Um, so before coronavirus was really beginning to loom in seriously, although it was emerging in the academic papers and I was watching it. Um, what we've got is a just-in-time system, which is like a, a web of very tightly stretched rubber bands. And if some of them go, the whole structure goes. And so you get knock-ons, and that's what's happening. In this case, there are shortages, for example, rice has gone. India has stopped, uh, stopped exports, so has Pakistan. We expected delays to happen in France and Spain. They haven't. They've held up better than expected. But if they're illnesses in Italy get worse and they are absolutely at time of talking uh, in the top uh, premier league of, of deaths and damage and disruption from coronavirus. Who knows what will happen? Um, the point of being concerned about just in time is that it, it's all assuming everything works perfectly, but if it stops working perfectly, the whole system begins to go edgy. That's already happening. And the nightmare scenarios that could get worse. What's a resilient system is the question you should be asking me. So I'm going to ask myself and say it in one sentence. <laughs> a resilient system, Tom, a resilient system is a decentralized system where you have connections. You don't have autarky where only Birmingham feeds itself and says, go away, the rest of you. You obviously have you have trade. Trade is good. But Britain has turned trade into the, the basis of its food system. Uh, and, and has done it in a way that assumes it's in control when it's not actually in control. OK, the food system is is broken, but no, it's not there... broken. Tom, it's... I interrupt you. It's not broken. It's fragile. And there are right. bits of it which are sending big bleeps of warning signs. The poor people on low incomes are one. The just in time system is another set of bleeps. There are others. The food 
inequalities of food, inequalities of money flows down the system. What I argue in my book is there are a great number of bleeps going on of warning signals. And actually, if you've got the eyes and the ears to look and to listen, you can say, holy Moses, we've got to shift this. Well, we've got time to do it, actually. It's not broken, but it could break. And so that leads nicely to the question, what are our exist what are our existing strengths within the current food system what are we doing right are we doing anything right yes we are i constantly say throughout my book um look there are lots of good things that have happened in britain uh britain when i was a child i'm born in britain in lincolnshire actually up the hill next to uh, the cathedral so which i think is uh, the the nicest cathedral in, in 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 the european beautiful sets of cathedrals we have so i'm slightly biased uh, but i spent on and off a lot of time in india my father went and worked in india this is you know britain was uh, india was independent but he was working for a firm and they asked him to go to india so he did um uh, when I came back, really, to live in, 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 in Britain in 1955, um, full-time full forever since, um, British food was brown. It was brown. What we've done, the good thing that's happened is Britain's food has got better. It's got colour in it. It's got cultural diversity in it. In fact, my dad used to drive us miles as kids to try and find an Indian restaurant because he just wanted it, and I wanted it. My childhood favourite food was rice and dal. When I'm ill, that's all I want to eat. Um, you know, it's my comfort food. Uh, Britain has got multicultural. It's got just fantastic chefs. Restaurant, the, your industry, the chef's world, has just gone boom. This has been fantastic. One of the paradoxes of the highly concentrated food retailing sector is they've been able to bring in vast amounts and a different range of food. All of that is great. We've got better. People from abroad can't believe how good British food has got. It's culturally interesting. How can we make that turn into a better food system rather than just raiding the world to pretend that it's a good food system. That's the challenge, Tom. And that is all about supporting small and local farmers and a local food system as much as possible, I suppose. I think it is. I think it is. And that's easier said than done in a big city, but we've got to do it. And I put it in my books and there are some wonderful examples. I don't try to go off and say, look, let's, this is the example. But I say, look, there are great people doing great things. You asked me, um, you know, what's good about Britain? There's fantastically good things that we can draw on. I'm not someone who says the whole system is broken. It isn't. It's creaking. And we've got to be discriminating about what's good and what's not. And what we think is good now, well, it may change in the next 30, 40 years. You know, I love it that I can get a mango occasionally because I was a child in India and I love mangoes and, and papayas. But getting four for two quid, well, that's ludicrous. You know, the carbon costs of getting that to me, I should pay, God knows what, 20 quid, have it maybe once a year. Um, you know, We've got to think very practically like that, but it will come from what I call in my book and I've called for many years, 
democratic experimentation. And I think you people, Chef's Manifesto and SDG2 people, are really critical in that. You're experimenting. And I, in my book, and Pamela Mason and, and my book, a, a great big tome on sustainable diets, was written for you, actually. It was to try and say, look, don't just think taste matters if you're throwing in lots of salt. Because actually that's leading to strokes. Um, as, you know, as you know, um, that book and your, your own work was hugely influential in, in my book, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet, and helped structure the, my, my own kind of manifesto. So it's, it's working. We're, we're well, reading that's, it. That's great. That's great. And OK, this is only little old me and little old you. What we need is this needs to be let me be very pompous it needs to be more than a movement or pioneers or experimentation as i call it uh, it's got to be structured if yes. we have a government a right-wing conservative government let's let's cut to the quick that accepts that climate change is going to wreck britain so much so that it commits rightly and honorably and scientifically accurately to being zero carbon Britain by 2050, well, holy Moses, we've got to get on with it. That means changing that one fifth of all the trucks on British motorways are food. We've got to do some very radical rethinking and do it in a systemic way and do it nicely with people, for people, but have a framework. I'm an academic. Unless you have the framework there, Tom Hunt or Tim Lang doing their thing is great, but it's piddling and small. It's systemic. It's not enough unless we shift, as the great British epidemiologist Geoffrey Rose said, if you just target small numbers of people and say, well, OK, they're a problem, let's deal with them. No, you've got to shift the whole U-shaped curve. You've got to move the structure so that you send new signals and new frameworks. So over the last 12 or 24 months, there's been a rise in energy around climate change and people wanting to make a difference as individuals. And it's really felt like it's or food sustainability and sustainability has stepped into the mainstream and more and more larger corporations are looking into their operations and there's what I was hoping felt like a mass, a critical mass of, of people around the world really acknowledging the issues around the climate crisis and looking at their own practices. Now, we've just experienced a major pandemic which has completely thrown everything up in the air. I feel like there's an underlying feeling that this might have to drive some of the change that we were hoping to see through our governments and through the system, simply in order for them to be able to cope with the changes that are happening um, and the way that we're going to have to, to revisit how our food works in order to continue to feed our countries and the UK in particular. Do you... What do you think? Do you agree? And can you tell me if the government are looking at making any changes to ensure our food security? Um, look, I 
we're we're talking in the middle of this very big crisis that is pretty likely to go on for months. Its aftermath, its impact will be considerable for a long time. Your sector, the catering sector, in certain parts of it has just been smashed. It's been closed by government edict for understandable reasons, but I think cack-handedly. I think instead of closing great sections, it should, and here's why we need local food committees and food planning to have operated, because they wouldn't have allowed this to happen. Skills, capabilities, facilities have all been just closed down when they should be now feeding people and contributing to their well-being. That is a sign and a symbol of what's wrong in Britain. Uh, and that's back to back with uh, the reflex of the government and has been of all governments, actually, except Labour, to its credit for precisely three years at the end of the Blair Brown years when the banking crisis happened and they suddenly realised food prices doubled uh, on world commodity markets and the rich world suddenly said, holy Moses, we thought food was a problem of Africa. It's ours too. And to its credit, the Labour government then started saying, OK, we've got to do something about it. And a whole series of rethinking went on about food security, health and so on. Cabinet office reviews. I was involved in that. I was brought in into that uh, and had been at the very end of bits of, of the of the Thatcher John Major time uh, dealing with world nutrition, by the way. Um, uh, but it was stopped when the Cameron government came in uh, and it was all thrown away. Uh, now we're doing it again in crisis. Again, one of the things we've got to learn is we've got to stop this crisis planning about food. And there's some big thinking that's got to do now. And that's what my book calls for. And that's what's not happening in the government. I'm privy to what is going on inside central government. I'm well informed. Uh, and the, the, the ministers are literally just doing what I say in my book is called Leave it to Tesco et al. Uh, they're not even dealing with the catering trade in the, in the in my way in a comprehensive way that I think they should be doing. So I think now is the time in this crisis for caterers to actually speak up more and and to be doing what some of them are doing heroically. I think the fact that the government has closed down basically or put a heavy Monty Python foot onto the head of schools catering, school meals catering, is shocking and scandalous. They've allowed a voucher scheme to replace uh, what uh, uh, um, uh, cooks in schools were able to do. So now uh, children uh, uh, and parents of children who were in receipt of free school meals have been given a voucher to redeem in a supermarket. And we've had evidence of utterly inappropriate dietary donation being given to that. At the same time, we've got food banks running out of food. The response to that is like Morrison saying, OK, we'll increase our food manufacturing. And it's up to you to the public to maybe buy 10 million pounds worth more of food to give a sort of crumbs from the rich people's table to the poor. This system of food welfare is broken. It does not deal with food inequalities. It never did. It never will. And we've got to see in front of our own eyes what is happening. And that's not happening. And indeed, 
literally, you probably heard my computer going there, a letter has been bouncing backwards and forwards from colleagues and I, which is about to go to the government to say, this has to stop and we've got to have a proper system of food advice to the public, guidance about what we need to be eating to be the equivalent of the advice about how we're to behave in public. And this has got to be about giving more power and local food liaison groups. We've called it, don't mind what they're called. In the in Second World War, they were called food committees and agriculture committees. We've got to have food hubs emerging and done with the blessing of the local authority. A whole range of things need to be done. And if this crisis all evaporates in the next year, do not allow this to suddenly all go back to business as usual. Because in the middle of this disruption, Tom, and anyone who's listening to us, there are people pushing for market share to increase to the retailers and for the big firms to crush the, the small firms. A lot of it is being done uh, without you even knowing about it. Thank you, Tim. So to wrap up, can you just tell us what we can do as chefs and even as home cooks to help support the changes we need to see happening? Keep doing what you're doing, which is to celebrate a new cuisine. Uh, I am a great fan of the new Nordic cuisine. I've seen people like me, actually much better than me, Nordic academics working with chefs and developing a movement which at one level was very high in the elite, but another level has transformed school meals in cities and feeding for the elderly in cities like Copenhagen. It's very moving to see what the Nordic diet has done. I would like to see a new British diet come out of this, new well, regionalism. I think you can start developing and organising that chef's convocations and things have to develop and be harder edged, if I can say. But don't lose sight that your job is pleasure and is health and is environment and is culture and is meaning and is social engagement. Food is, that's why people like me call it pompously, multi-criteria. It's not just either health or pleasure or environment or jobs all culture, it's all of those. Keep doing what you're doing it. But as my, I always say to my students, do it harder. Thanks, Tim. Lovely chatting to you. And you. The full impact of the novel coronavirus is unknown. However, it seems that this pandemic will accelerate the need to change our food. Tim Lang is worried that this will mean the further polarisation of our food system delivering more power into the hands of big retailers whilst ignoring local solutions that can provide us with real food security. Do you agree? Please comment and email us. We want to continue this conversation. Either way, it is up to us as chefs and home cooks to make sure this does not happen. We must see this as an opportunity to rethink how we feed the world in a more sustainable way by supporting better food choices and putting pressure on our leaders to act whilst prioritising health and sustainability first. After we finished recording, Tim said to me that he thinks we should create our own new Nordic food scene in the UK and of course in other countries respectively. And why not? Let's create the new British food scene. Let's club together as chefs, charities and organisations and relaunch food in Britain so that it is as sustainable as we need it to be. 
Thank you so much for listening. That's all for this episode of the Chess Manifesto podcast. And please do subscribe through the link in our bio to join me next time. Bye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduce waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. Celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. (laughs) 